Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And what a day it was yesterday up in our area. Whoa. <coughs> we must have been sort of in the epicentre of the storms yesterday because they were talking about Lansfield and Romsey and things getting really high rainfalls. Right. And I tipped 40 mils out of my rain gauge last night. So Really? Yeah. So we got some fairly hefty rain and there was water flying down the sides of the roads and all that sort of stuff. It's Fabulous, really. <laughs> can't complain about rain. No, we certainly can't. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it was one of our, our best falls for the season. Excellent. And, uh, yes, yeah, so all the tanks are full, the ponds are full, everything's looking good. I'm hoping it's soaking down into the ground. You can never be sure unless you go for an exploratory dig. Um, but uh, our ground got so dry last year that um, I think it's going to take even more rain than this for it to actually break the hydrophobicness of the soil deeper down. But, uh, well, it is, because I, <clears throat> we were digging um, cooch grass out mm. the other day, and it was so dry still <sighs> underneath the top surface, just yeah. so yeah, dry. Any soil that hasn't been disturbed or anything so the water can get into yeah. it is probably still dry. Um, so <laughs> we've just got to hope we get more of it before the end of the winter is over, because mm. they're talking about another dryish summer by the sounds of things already, so a yep. bit of a worry. But anyhow, we and gardeners, we bounce back. My tank's full too. Hooray. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, it's, always, it's always nice to have all that free rain. I wonder when they'll start changing it, charging us. Oh, don't for. say that. <laughs> How dare they? Yes. Oh, dear. Anyway, we must also say a very good morning to uh, Tim Sansom. Tim, Marketing Manager of PMA. Good morning. Good morning, Pam. Morning, Steve. Good morning, listeners. Right, look, I'm a bit jealous of that 40 mil of rain. <laughs> Down the Mornington Peninsula, I reckon. I didn't look at the gauge, but I reckon it would be about 10 to 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're doubling my Useful, effort. Well but done. Not, not fantastic. Yeah, yeah so and, and definitely at my place, the soil is not wet all the way through. No. You know, no. We're still, I'm in a red clay soil, yeah. sort of right. red hill clays. And it's, yeah, you get down a foot or so, or probably even less than that, mm. and, it's, and it's pretty rock hard still. Uh, so, but that's, I guess. The pattern, you know, this is the time of the year for soaking. We typically don't get a lot of great rain until spring. Yeah. You know, so it's it still hope. Be, yeah. Oh, yes, there's going to be a lot more hope, coming. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's still. I still feel like there's parts of my garden that are recovering from mm. the summer. Yes. You know, there's it's there's parts of it that are still kind of parched and plants are they're going into their winter torpor, but they're mm. but they're kind of still looking a bit starved from the summer and. and there's new life appearing everywhere with all this wonderful rain. True. But they're still coming through, mm. so, you know, bring on a bit more, I yep. say. Yeah. It, was only, it was only last Sunday that I was actually um, almost bragging that we hadn't had a frost yet, and I've been hit with oh, two well heavy ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we copped it at Macedon too this last week. Uh, I mean, I, my Iachromas and my Wigandias and my Abyssinian Bananas and all that stuff were looking fantastic. Up until the other day, but it's just a, a light oh, that's burn. good because at my place, even though I didn't get the rain, both of those Wigandia and Abyssinian banana still looking good. So yeah. oh, I didn't right. get the frost you yeah. got. Oh yeah, well look, I always expected. I mean, by this time of the year, I expect those plants to be looking 
black and dreadful. Mm. Um, they always bounce back again, but um, uh, up until yes, last week they were they were still looking very verdant and fantastic, and uh, uh, yeah, suddenly they're all a bit burnt and frazzled looking yep. over the edges and oh, well. it took all the flowers off my Brugmansia sanguineas. Oh. Uh, didn't seem to burn their leaves too badly, but it, yeah, all the flowers just dropped off mm. and they were looking stunning. Uh, incongruous, I reckon, in a cool climate though to have something <laughs> as exotic as a Brugmansia <laughs> in full bloom in the middle of winter. <laughs> but still, I was revelling in it up until the time. Uh, but yeah, look, we need frost too because frost actually is our friend in lots of ways. Of course it is. It helps clean up a few bugs and uh, breaks up soil and does all sorts of useful things. Mm. And if we're mad enough to be planting things that are what the Americans call uh, being in zonal denial, uh, <laughs> which I love the term. Uh, I wish we had zones here, actually, that were properly defined so that we could then deny them. Mm. Um, so, um, But that's part of the fun of gardening, is to try and do the things that everybody tells you you shouldn't. Yeah. But how boring if we only planted according to our zone. Yeah, yeah, because that would just Very be... Very boring. Well, it would be like colouring into numbers. I mean, really. Yeah, and it'd be like everybody else's garden yeah. next door, you know. Exactly. But the zones are just arbitrary too. Of course I mean, they and, are. And they're very much, you know, general generalisation. And, yep. you know, within 100 metres you can get a massive difference. In, yep. in, in, in Well, within your own garden. In, yeah, exactly. So why would... Oh, yeah, I've never been one to be slave to a... A zone. a zone that tells me I can or can't plant. Of course, yeah. I'm going to have a crack at growing something yeah, that I can't. And if you don't succeed, it doesn't really matter that much. No, you know, you've you've actually learned something from it. You've grown or you've attempted to grow something that, in fact, didn't make it. So that's a learning process. You know, the negatives of gardening should be taken on board as well as the positives. I think. Oh, you know, definitely. So, uh, in fact, you tend to learn more from the things that don't go right than the things that mm. do. Mm. So, yeah. So I'm all, all in favour of trying things you shouldn't have. Um, and, you know, succeeding where people tell you you're going to fail and failing and not telling anybody because you don't have to. <laughs> you know, it's a win-win situation, really. <laughs> now, firstly, I do have to say a very big thank you to all our listeners for last Sunday morning. Of course, last Sunday was our big annual Radiothon. Mm-hmm. And uh, as usual, our wonderful listeners were incredibly generous. So we've had a fantastic Radiothon again. Um, we did at the end of our, our stint on air last week reach 10,500, which Fantastic. was a wonderful mm. effort. We do, we haven't quite made our target as yet, but I know people have been coming into the station during the week. Um, so I'm sure our, ta- our, um, our, uh, Income has come up a, a little bit more since we went off air last Sunday. But um, there are, we do have a few vouchers left over, um, and these are always great value. So if anyone um, still hasn't uh, donated to the show, um, you, can, uh, you can grab, uh, give the, the, the staff a, a ring or come into the station during uh, office hours during next week or the week after, and as I say, we still have, um, we've got a little bit of product left still out there in the courtyard. We also have some books left over, um, but we do have some vouchers as well. And vouchers are great because you can give them as a gift. Um, you can uh, send them in the mail easily to someone or you can keep them if you're a, if you're a gardening club and, and hand them out for, um, yeah, raffle prizes for a raffle prize yeah. or something. So they're great. So I will just quickly mention which um, vouchers we have left over because some of them are really excellent. Now, we've got two um, 
Bullying Art and Garden Sustainable Living and Garden Class uh, vouchers left over. Now, each of these are for two people, so you can take your partner or your friend along to one of these, and if you uh, jump online and just uh, look at Bullying Art and Garden, you can see some of the amazing workshops they're running, and these are good for any of these workshops. So they've got things like they're covering things like... um, Natural pest control and companion planting, uh, backyard chooks, winter fruit maintenance, art of espalier, growing fruit and veggies in small spaces, and on it goes. Healthy, productive compost and worms. So uh, these vouchers will entitle you and one other person to uh, any of those workshops of your choice. Uh, now, $80 gets you um, two people, as I say, into one of those workshops, and we have two of those vouchers left. Um, we have one uh, $20 voucher at Branch Out Nursery still left. That's in uh, Warrandyte Road in North Ringwood, a lovely little um, little nursery out there. We have one um, edible Eden design class still. This is um, Karen Sullivan's uh, workshop, and this is taking place on 27th of July. It's all about native edibles, a walk, talk and taste, and this all takes place in Karen's uh, own garden there. So we've had one of those left over for $55. We've got one Fitzroy Nursery voucher left for $50. And, of course, the big one, and a lot of people expressed interest last Sunday, but um, weren't sure whether the date would suit um, their friends or neighbours that they wanted to take as well. So I will go through this one again. This is an exclusive private tour for up to 15 3CR gardening show listeners. Now, it values at $60, but for us, for our listeners, $50 for one of these vouchers. And it's a private tour of Ripponlea, not only the garden, but also the mansion. It starts with a tour of the garden um, with uh, one of the National Trust gardeners uh, who can answer all your um, horticultural questions. And then it goes, uh, follows on to a tour of the inside of the mansion uh, with uh, Matt Chester, who's Operations and Public Program Coordinator. So um, a very, very exclusive tour, but it's all taking place on the 2nd of September as a celebration of the start of spring. So it would be wonderful going through uh, Ripponlea Garden at the start of spring. I'm sure you'd find it very, very interesting. And uh, as I say, it's only a tour for 3CR listeners. Uh, Nobody else will be there that morning. So uh, it is a wonderful opportunity. So if you're uh, interested in that one or if you'd like to take a friend with you, do uh, phone the station during office hours, 94198377, and um, speak to one of the staff members there about that one as well. And uh, with a bit of luck, uh, we will make our target again. But a huge thank you to everyone for supporting us again for another year. We really, really do appreciate it. Okay, well, uh, I do have a couple of uh, other announcements to get to. Not many, of course, as you can imagine at this time of the year. First up, one for today. If you've got no plans for today, <clears throat> uh, Seeds Communal Garden are having a winter soup festival. Now, that's a good thing for today. It's taking place today from 11am through to 6pm. It's at 331 Albert Street in Brunswick. It's free entry. And uh, it's uh, 
You can support local artists and performers, browse the craft market, enjoy a wholesome meal, share stories around a fire, listen to live music while the kids enjoy free activities throughout the day. There'll be uh, raffle prizes donated by local businesses. Um, If you're musically inclined, bring along an instrument for a jam session. Uh, As I said, there are activities for kids, including juggling, soccer, mural painting, weaving and wand making. Oh, goodness me. We can all be fairies. Um, it is a waste-free event, so uh, Spare a Cup is actually loaning mugs for the day, which is a great idea. Uh, just one, one thing to note, it is a cash-only event, and all the money raised goes towards helping grow their garden. So that's today, 11am through till 6 at 331 Albert Street in Brunswick. Now, also a reminder, school holidays started, uh, and... Uh, Both uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne and Cranbourne are running a whole series of winter children's activities in the gardens. Many of these activities are free. Some have a a, a very small charge um, for the child and the accompanying adult goes free. So um, if you're interested at all, uh, do either give the gardens a call or go online and uh, just type in uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria and uh, up will come a lot of these uh, children's activities. Uh, Now, also coming up, um, the Australian Plant Society, Keelor Plains Group, uh, are meeting next Friday, July the 5th at 8 o'clock. Their guest speaker will be Jodie Jackson and she's speaking on insect hotels. The venue is the main hall, Raleigh Road Activity Centre, 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong. And uh, if you'd like further information, you can phone the Secretary, Anne, on 9336 3228. That's 9336 3228. And finally, just a reminder that NADOC Week is coming up and Friends of the Melton Botanic Gardens are having a very special guided walking tour Uh, in conjunction with NADOC Week on Friday the 12th of July. And uh, this will be taking a guided walk through the Melton Botanic Gardens to see Indigenous plants from the Melton region and Aboriginal use plants, including bush tucker plants. Now, it's a gentle walk. It will take about one and a half hours, followed by morning tea. Uh, Highlights of the natural features and remnant vegetation, Ryan's Creek and the lake Indigenous plantings, uh, Koori Student Garden, Indigenous People's Garden, Victorian Volcano, Volcanic Plains Garden and the Bush Foods Garden. As I said, it's Friday the 12th of July, 10 through till noon with morning tea. Uh, as I said, it's a free event. Meet at the Depot and Plant Nursery, which is at 21 William Street in Melton. Uh, bookings aren't essential, essential but... Um, to assist with catering, uh, if you wish to book, you can phone John Bentley. His number is 97433819 and leave a message if it's unattended or you can go to friends at fmbg.org.au and email a message through that you're coming. Okay, well, it's high time we opened up our uh, talkback line. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. We have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Tim Sansom from Plants Management Australia in the studio. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. 
or this morning we have Robin on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Robin, 94198377. Tim, you've got a whole lot of stories to tell us. Let's start <laughs> with a story. I like a good story on a Sunday morning. Well, plants, plants are stories in many ways. Well, people and interactions with plants are about stories. Um, I've... For the last 12 months, I've been working with Plants Management Australia. What, what, what we do at Plants Management Australia is work with plant breeders to get plant material from them, the sort of the, the creations that plant breeders produce, often a lifetime of work involved, mm. and we bring them to market. Um, and so we help promote them and we represent the plants, both in Australia and internationally. Um, and over the course of the last 12 months, I've discovered so much more depth about what the stories of plants are. You, you, know, you walk through the garden centre or, or, or anywhere where you, can, where you see plant material, and often we don't recognise or understand what the, the lineage of that plant coming to market is. And there's, there's kind of two worlds, or, or kind of a split world of, of plant material that we work with. There's the kind of the straight species, and often the collectors, like, like Steve's material, will be around material that's from wild collected interesting species that are then cultivated in our landscapes and that's fascinating my garden is full of that sort of material but a lot of what we see in the garden centers are actually highly bred or manipulated in some way or changed mm-hmm. from what they were in, in a wild landscape um, and they're the kind of plants that have got these stories of human interaction behind them so there's a couple of plants i wanted to talk to talk about today that i think bring those those stories to light one is uh, a new introduction that, that we've put onto the market this year, which is an edible apple, uh, so it's a, an apple tree. Um, some of your listeners and you guys may have heard of Bob Magnus down in Tasmania, yeah, yes, Woodbridge Fruit have. Trees. Mm. So Bob's, Bob's a, a collector of heritage fruit for 30-plus years. Mm. He's been down in Tassie, down in the Signet Valley, a little place called Woodbridge. He's had a long association with what used to be the research station in Hewanville, which was the Apple Research Station, um, called Grove, which is now kind of defunct. And he's replicated their collection of apple trees, heritage apple trees, in his own property. Fantastic. Three, four hundred varieties of apples, a real compendium of history of Tasmanian apple culture. Mm. One of the things that he's picked up along the way was was a roadside seedling, actually, that was a red-fleshed apple. So not just a red skin, this is red interior flesh as well, yep. um, which oh, there's a long history behind where that may have, how that may have came to be there. The one that he's, he's found is, uh, was a roadside seedling, uh, which he then sort of, he, he cultivated, propagated and started selling as a variety called Hewanville Crab. And that's a variety that he's been selling for 20-odd years through his catalogue. Mm-hmm. But about 20-odd years ago, he collected seed from one of the apples, germinated those seeds, and has a range of seedlings that he's now bred. Okay. That's, a, that's a breeding program. He's, he's not a controlled cross, but a, an open pollination cross, and he's got a half a dozen varieties that have come from that selection, one of which is this amazing, quite reasonably-sized, early-fruiting, red-fleshed apple, which is quite distinct from its parents, so it's something new to horticulture, uh, and it's something that Bob's been cultivating and looking at for the last five or ten years and we've selected one of those varieties we've called it magnus summer surprise uh, and it's uh, hit the market this year so it's in, available in in stores across most of the country at the moment but it's its virtue is that it's got this amazing red flesh that it stays when you cut the apple open so it doesn't oxidize uh, so you can sort of you can 
crush the, 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 the fruit and make a juice which actually stays red, which is quite rare. I, I think the, a lot of, of red-fleshed um, other fruits will oxidise and go brown. Uh, so it doesn't oxidise and go brown, so mm. it stays red. It could potentially make a cider. We don't know. It's pretty early, early to know. But pink cider. Pink cider. Rosé cider wow. is quite a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this, I, I, I thought it was a great example of how a, uh, I, I guess someone who's got a, a genuine interest or a long lifetime investment of interest in a plant variety like like Bob does with with apples, and he also does pears and a number of other fruit trees, but has has through no real. I guess he didn't sort of set out to know what was going to happen, mm. but as with a keen eye and with a with a encyclopedic knowledge of this particular genus, he's been able to pick up something that has now become something that is a new addition to Fantastic. horticulture. And when you think about what every, I mean, you, there's lots of varieties of apples that we know out there: Cox's orange, Pippin, or um, Blenheim orange, all these sorts of English varieties. We've even got our own Australian heritage fruit. Granny Smith is yes. an Australian discovery. Many people don't understand that that's an Australian discovery. came from Ride in New South Wales uh, and is now being grown throughout the world. Mm. So continuing on that heritage of garden selection and, and, and plant creation, really, it's a fascinating story. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's keep an eye out for Magnus Summer Surprise as an apple. Uh, I, I don't want to get too... too Crazy on the selling of it, but it is a great apple and it's a lovely story. Question though, uh, how does it taste? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, taste is good, but um, what about pollinators? Does it? Yeah, it's it's sort of a uh, mid mid season flower. So, for those of you who perhaps don't understand how pollination of apples works, that basically the pollination of apple an apple is it requires another apple variety mm. to pollinate yes. it, uh, and it's all about flower timing. So when another flower Another fruit tree can donate pollen to that tree, yeah. another apple tree. That's when you get pollination. So this is in the early group. Uh, and it's, it's, there's a universal pollinator, which is Jonathan, which mm. pretty much spreads its flowering across a long period. Yep. So it would easily be pollinated by Jonathan, by Cox's Orange Pippin, by Granny Smith. So it, it's a generalist popula- yeah. uh, yep. pollinator. Yeah, well, mm. it's always so worth it's knowing that. Yeah, you know, it's you get to plant well. a, a new apple tree, you need to know whether it's actually going to perform for you or not. Yeah, and so how it's going to yeah. fruit. And yeah. yeah. The, I mean, the thing about this, this tree is it's got, it's, it's got red in its buds, in the fruit, in the, in the flower, uh, and in the, in the foliage. So it's, so it, it's through the plant. The, it's through the, the plant, this, well, the anthocyanins, which yeah. is the, the, the red pigment. Mm. The, the, and then this is not scientific, well, not, not sort of proven in terms of DNA, but the red-fleshed apple comes from a variety or a, or a, yeah, a it's a species, actually, a Malus nidsvichniana, which comes from the Tinsian Valley in, the, in China, sort of China, Afghanistan, around there. The theory that, we're, that Bob's running, and I've had lengthy discussions with him on this, is that, that a, a, a selection of nidsvichniana, which is a red-fleshed apple, came into the collection at Grove many, many years ago, and the, and the one he selected, Hewenville Crab, was a seedling off that. Oh, yeah. um, and then this is a seedling off that. Mm. So there's this sort of red gene that's running through the, through the selection. But it's not very common in apples. There's one particular variety that this needs Vecchiana, which is often rogued out of the bush and has been mm. for centuries by, by local people because it was so special. They saw red leaves and they hoik it out, of the, hoik it out and go and sell it at the local market. So it's 
not been in commercial cultivation very much. Right. Mm. So is this going to be the next superfruit? <laughs> no. I wasn't going to talk about superfruits. There's too many superfoods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is yeah. far too many. How many yes. goji berries can one eat? Yeah, yeah well, there is that, yes. Yes, I just think a balanced diet's reasonable, yeah. but anyhow. And, and this is novel. It's the sort of thing that... that who knows, it may, I don't know if it'll ever get to sort of commercial level like you'd see at the supermarket, yep. but it's certainly a great backyard apple, mm. bit of a novelty, great-looking flower. In fact, that's the sort fresh. of thing you want. You don't necessarily want the one you can buy in the supermarkets. Mm. I know there's all sorts of reasons for not buying supermarket apples because you, you know, you're growing your own, you're hopefully keeping down the uh, chemicals that go on it, so you know you're getting a really good, healthy apple, um, but you still don't want the same one that you can buy in the caseload yeah. from the supermarket yeah. anyway. It's far better to have something that... You can't buy there um, because it's more novel and it's more interesting. And, you know, and when they're really cheap in the supermarkets, you've got your yeah, crop ready. So. Yeah, you want to – I don't think that's a good point, actually, is any – and I grow quite a bit of vegetables and fruit in my backyard. And I very much shy away from something I can get at the supermarket. In fact, I don't even grow potatoes anymore. Well, I, I was going to say onions and potatoes yeah. are two things I virtually don't yeah. bother growing because they taste exactly the same as anything I could buy at the supermarket. Um, and they're so cheap and they take up so much space in the yeah. garden anyway. Exactly. I'm better to... Focus on the fo- things that are novel and interesting. And, yeah. the, and, the, and, and that you need to pick really fresh. Yeah. Greens. Yeah. I grow a lot of greens. Yeah. You know, because, you, you know, it doesn't matter how how quickly they get into the supermarket. There's an awful lot of food miles involved and, and they're never going to be as fresh as you going out in the garden, picking it and taking it into the kitchen and using it immediately. Yeah, mm. so and there's something about that, that picking something fresh. Mm. Like that is, it hasn't been stored at all. Mm. Like an apple in autumn that is from a crispy cold morning, you take it from the tree and crisp in your mouth. It just tastes, mm. I don't know, it's got so much more vitality than something that's been sitting in a... Cool store for 12 months. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, yes. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yes. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. So have you actually tasted one? Yes, I have. Absolutely. Mm. Any good? Yeah, good apple. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> well, it's because the red, red-fleshed apples, and there are a few others on the market, typically a bit tart, you know, yes. and which is not a bad thing. Oh, it's, if you, it if is. You know, I like it to, an apple with a yeah. bit yes. bite to it. But uh, I guess the, the general palate for apples is a bit sweeter, mm. and this has definitely got more sweetness okay. uh, than, than like some of the sort of sharper. Uh, it, it, I would say it's equivalent. I mean, Granny Smith's quite of a sharp apple. If people, yes, it is. You know, the, you're comparing it to, I don't know, something like a Pink Lady. It's between the two of those. Pink Lady's right up there on the oh, sweet yes. end. It sort of suits the American palate. Yes. Whereas this is kind of more, uh, I don't know, a more mature palate. Yeah. Mm. Good. Sounds excellent. Yeah, well, there's, there's, you know, some trees out there this year. We hope to get more out there next year. Um, and, you know, like, it's, it's great to watch. I've known Bob for years, and it's great to see this sort of enthusiasm he's got for something that's novel and interesting and new. Mm. Um, and, and he's been doing this for 30, 40 years. Mm. Uh, and he knows that he's at the end of his his productive life in a way. Yep. But he sees this as a legacy that can oh, move gosh, through. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And his kids now run the business. So have a look at Woodbridge Fruit Trees. That's that's Bob Magnus's um, mail order company down in Tassie. Uh, his son, Nick, now runs the runs the setup there. Uh, and they mail order right throughout the country. Mm. Uh, and this is their season, so it's all bare root trees. Um, so get onto their website and have a look at what they've got to offer. He's got not just varieties to, to to sell but there's a heap of good information and little fact sheets and workshops and mm. so Bob kind of pioneered the um, like the sort of domestic dwarf apple culture 
movement in Australia, you know, putting them onto dwarfing rootstocks yep. and then training them mm-hmm. onto a couple of wires that are only sort of chest high. Means means you can manage them for birds. Means you can plant them much more closely. Means that you can have ten varieties yeah. of apples, which oh, means you're going to yes. pretty much guarantee yeah, pollination, and you're going to get early, mid, and late season. So yeah. all that stuff about how to how to do a backyard little orchard, uh, he's been doing for a long time and mm. has really focused on home orchard production. So a wealth of information. Mm. Um, so yeah. Check out Woodbridge Fruit Trees. Fantastic. You'll see that you should see the the apple on that website as well. Okay. Uh, if not, there are quite a few retailers around the country that are carrying. Yep. Excellent. Because yeah. one of those things is when we talk about plants, it's good to it's great to talk about plants in you know it's a fascinating, interesting plant. But you've got to be able to get it. I'd, lo- I'd love our, everyone to be able to get the plants that we talk about. I'm not sure everyone will be able to access this one this year, but in years to come, it'll come as we build up supply. Oh, it's something for people to aspire to, yeah, to well, look to, forward to. Look to. Out for. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, that's great. Excellent. Yeah. So okay. I've put, I've, there's a couple of photographs that I've sent through for the for the Facebook page. So and there's a nice photo of Bob standing in his orchard. So wonderful. You'll you'll see the man at work. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Stephen, let's talk about a couple of plants. All right. Um, yes, I had to run around in the rain yesterday afternoon grabbing some bits. I didn't bring an awful lot along this morning, but uh, I bought a sort of an eclectic mixture of things. And one of the things I bought along this morning is um, an agapetes. Now, agapetes are an interesting group in the Erica family. And you could basically call them neotropical blueberries, I guess. Um, uh, and there's a whole range of species and genera, in fact, in this, in this group of plants. And they're really useful garden plants. Uh, honey-eating birds love the flowers, so they're a good bird-attracting plant. They're evergreen. Um, they are often epiphytic in the wild, so they grow up in the forks of trees or on the side of trunks and things. So they have a very small root system. So they make fabulous pot plants that will last for years. They, you can put them in a, a hanging basket. Um, there's, there's a whole range of ways of using them. In fact, I can remember as a young lad going along to uh, the uh, Melbourne show and Ian Nichols used to have his Burner Park nursery stall in Centennial Hall at the uh, showgrounds and he used to have an Agapetes serpens which is probably the most common species and it was this thing that trailed down out of a basket it must have been at least a metre and a half long and it always was in flower in September for for the show and it was in this grotty little bright green plastic hanging basket, you know, the sort of ones that had the little tray underneath. <laughs> yes. them. Really dreadful. <laughs> know them well. Yeah, <laughs> and it had this huge lignotuber on it that looked like it filled the whole hanging basket. There couldn't have been any room in there for, for soil. And Ian used to sell hundreds of babies from this, this one plant hanging up there because everybody saw that Agapetes and, and just thought it was amazing. So they are a really interesting group of plants. Now, this one is one called Agapetes hossiana, and you'll sometimes see this being sold as red elf. I don't know where the name came from particularly. I think somebody didn't know what its species name was, so <laughs> whacked a name on it red and elf. sold it as red elf. Uh, and it's a little bushy shrub. It'll grow to probably oh, about a metre by a metre. Uh, it also gets the lignotuber. In fact, as far as I know, all of the agapetes do get this big swollen base. Um, this one has little red flowers, and if you look at them really closely, the tubular flower has a green and black tip to the flower. Um, it flowers mainly in the late winter spring uh, and it gets big, quite big berries that are white with sort of plummy coloured spots all over them, sort of a bird's eggy look. And they are edible. Um, 
not, I have to say, not overly exciting. There's not a lot of flavour. There's edible and palatable, and they're kind of different, aren't they? Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> Survival I mean, food? This isn't not palatable in the sense that it's not disgusting or anything. Right. It just doesn't have an awful yeah. lot of flavour. Um, but to know that you can actually eat something, I mean, there, there, there is a whole segment of the gardening fraternity out there, uh, and it seems to be a growing fraternity, of people that want to buy things that they can grow in their gardens that have edibility, and I'm doing that in inverted commas for people who can't see it on the radio. <laughs> uh, and so it doesn't matter how tenuously edible the plant right. is, as long as there's something about it. As long as it's not going to kill you. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So they will buy it and grow it because it, it is edible. Um, and I'm starting to collect some of this group of plants. Uh, some, unfortunately, are a bit more tropical than Neo, so some of them I have to keep in my greenhouse over the winter. Um, but there's Dimorphanthras from New Guinea, there's Maclinias from uh, South America, uh, Cavendishes also from South America. Um, there's a little thing called Dysterigma that I got uh, a few years ago, um, actually at one of the auctions for Plant Trust at our okay. ATM, um, which also apparently has edible berries, but it hasn't fruited for me yet. Uh, but they're all pretty evergreen plants, and some of them are climbing. Uh, the the Dimorphanthras climb from New Guinea, uh, and they all have bird attractant, lovely tubular flowers in pinks and greens and reds and whites and things. Uh, and all have edible berries. Um, and, of course, they're shade-loving, so you know, if you are serious about growing everything that you can eat, it's actually quite often hard to find something that's edible, uh, even tenuously so, that likes the shade. Mm. So these plants fit into a niche that not many edible plants do. And you've and got winter flowering here. Yeah. So... Are we nectar-feeding birds? Yeah, oh yeah, honey-eaters and, and spinebills and things think mm. they're fabulous. Uh, I've actually got serpents growing in a couple of pots outside my kitchen window, and when serpents comes into flower in the late winter, it'll be rattling with eastern spinebills mm-hmm. and things uh, when it's in bloom. And in fact... Anything with a tubular red flower is inclined to be bird attracted. Mm. So, you know, it's actually a, a good indicator. They're conditioned. Yeah, the they birds are, they are conditioned f- to look for those flowers. Yeah, that's right. They see a tubular red <laughs> yeah, flower and they, they s- go, oh, must be nectar in there. <laughs> yeah, so, so they're really good plants. And as I said, they make great pot plants. So even if you've only got a balcony, you could grow an agapetes or one of those group of plants and enjoy them uh, even just as a pot plant on a balcony. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I would... Um, seriously suggest people have a look at these plants. I mean, some of them have been around for years. Agapiti serpens has been a, uh, I wouldn't say common garden plant, but certainly an available garden plant for donkey's years. Um, And I'm just slowly adding to my collection of them. Whenever I find a new species, I snaffle it up. And uh, I think they're great plants. Mm. So there you go. So the neotropical blueberries, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And none of them seem to have blueberries, by the way. They're often white or pink or some other colour. Fair enough. Uh, uh, but they're quite a good size. I mean, they're, oh, pea, they are. they're pea-sized berries. So yes. they're, they're not tiny wee things. Like, there's some edible berries that are so small, why would you bother? Mm. Um, well, they take so long to pick them to get a mouthful. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> you know. uh, but I don't know that I've ever had any of these agapetes fruit to such an extent that you could get a punnet full off a no. plant. So uh, even though the berries are bigger, they're, they're probably one of those things that because you know you can eat them and you're walking around the garden, they're a browse plant. Yeah. So you just pick one and eat it as you mm. go past it. 
and much to the horror and fright of any non-horticultural friend that happens to be walking the garden with you. Try one of these. Yeah, I love doing that. That's great fun. You know? and, and, of course, I've got things like um, deadly nightshade growing in my garden, so some people are not too sure whether they should yeah. take a berry from me. Um, but, um, yeah, I do know the difference between the edible and the not-so-edible ones. Given that you're still here. Given that I'm do. still here. And I do say to people who aren't really aware of what they should or shouldn't be eating, if you're eating berries, if they come out of a plastic punnet, they're probably safe. <laughs> Otherwise, don't eat things until you're really sure. Uh, That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it is where, where do the agapetes hail from? Where? Mainly around the um, Himalayas, uh, so northern India through to China. Although there's one Australian species that keeps popping up every so often called Agapetes meniana, which comes from Queensland. Um, but every so often you see that it's had a name change. <laughs> and so it keeps getting pulled out of Agapetes. The last time I went into the Q site having a look at Plants of the World online, they still had Meniana as an Agapetes. But I am told that it, it should be in another genus, the name of which was originally coined by Baron von Mueller. So it's, it's been something else a long time ago. Okay. Uh, and it was called Paphia, P-A. P-H-I-A, Paphia meniana. Um, and it is a bit of an outlier because it's really weird that we've got one Agapetes mm. here and then all the others, as far as I know, are mm. all up in the Himalayas. Uh, so but even no, that, geographically... That's, yeah, it's, that it's not like a Gondwanan connection. No, no, no. It's, a long, it's a really weird thing. Yeah. So, Although having said that, we do have our rhododendrons from the north of Australia, uh, but they've got connections with the rhododendrons of New Guinea yeah, and Malaysia. And, and the, the kind of a land link that goes through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but one could say that, you know, Dimorphanthras, which are closely related to Agapetes, come from New Guinea. So there is that same sort of vague connection running down. So, yes, yeah, so we do have an Australian one if it is still an Agapetes, but I'm not dead sure. Um, uh, I actually changed all the names over to Paphia about two years ago uh, of that one, but I, having noticed it's still Agapetes on the Q site, you start to wonder whether you... Because mm. I, I tend to use that as my authority. I figure if you if you stick with it, there's some names I can't get my head around yet. I still can't call them Mahonia berberus yet. Um, uh, and I can't call a Medla crataegus yet. So that... That Q site you mentioned, yeah. just for listeners, what, what is the It's URL? called Plants of the World Online. Okay. So if you just type in Plants of the World Online, it will come up. Uh, and the home page of it, you can type in the name of the plant you're looking for. And as long as you get the spelling right, because it'll come up with no results if you get the spelling yep. wrong. But if you get the spelling right, it will bring it up. It will tell you whether it's an accepted species. If it's not an accepted species anymore, it will tell you what the, uh, the new name for the species mm-hmm. is. So you can then follow it through. Uh, and uh, yeah, I still can't label my medlars as Crataegus yeah. Germanica yet. It'll probably go back anyway. Well, so. look, it could do, but I mean, they're doing all this GM- DNA stuff and chromosomes. So is, is that site the same or, or a, a, a more recent iteration of the plant list? The plant you know? list is an old one which is no longer being okay, um, right. managed, so okay. it's not being changed. It's still up there and you can still go in and use it. Um, but it was Q's old one, and they decided instead of just rehashing that one all the time, that they'd start a whole new site. Um, And it's probably a little more interactive. Uh, If I've got any complaint at all about Plants of the World Online, a lot of the images they put up are of press specimens, Mm. which are very, very, very 
useless. <laughs> so <laughs> in they've, general. they've just gone to the herbarium. Yeah, and, yeah, and they whacked yeah, up yeah, a picture yeah. of a dried up. Which is probably easier than, you know, yeah. flying to Yunnan and. and they have had their mistakes as well. Yeah. So things do sneak in. I was doing some work on cornices I do on a regular basis because I hold the National Collection of Cornice in my nursery. And I was checking out the name of something or another in the cornice genus. Um, to find they had an image up of what was supposed to be a form of Cornus Florida, a, a southern form from sort of northern Mexico and what have you, and I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, but the image they had was of a completely different Cornus. Mm. Uh, so I, I did send them an email and suggest that there was an issue, and they went in and checked, and they said, yes, you were right, that was wrong. Uh, it had been sent to us by somebody, and we hadn't checked it. We just mm. put it up on the site. So they said, no more images will go up. Mm. Unless they've been rechecked by one of our botanists. So, Fair enough. But Plants of the World Online uh, is a really, really useful site. And mm. I, go, uh, I almost go in there daily now because there's just so many changes of names mm. that I don't write a label now until I go in and check mm. and see what, what they're putting uh, it's, in. And it's good for me, and I'm sure for listeners as well who are interested in plant material and nomenclature, to know where is the source. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, and if it's online and you can check it like yeah. that, that is a, such a useful thing mm. because plant naming is a kind of a moving feast at times. Of course and it is, and it's moving mo- more at the moment than ever before. Yeah. And, yeah. and I have a fascination with, with um, um, old garden books, so mm. that's kind of my collection, and I'm always reading, and the, the names that are in them are often... I don't know, they're like probably changed five times yeah, between yeah. the 1850s and now. But you can follow those lineages and get the, you yeah. can, oh, what is the current name? Oh, yeah. that's what they're talking about. And, and if you pop in a synonym, uh, it will come up. Mm. So uh, uh, I find it a really great mm. resource. So it's very, very handy. Um, but it is a bit frightening because if I try and keep up to date, it means that I've got an awful lot of synonyms written on labels <laughs> so that people can still work out that that is, in fact, the same plant that they bought from yeah. me last yeah. year. Um, <laughs> it's no longer Malus trilobata. It's Eriolobus trilobata. Uh, and all this sort of stuff I'm trying to get my head around. Um, Pseudocydonia, the mock yeah. quince or Chinese yeah. quince, that's gone back to Pseudocydonia as far as I know for a while. It there were the Chinomalies for a bit? Yeah, it was, a, yeah it was, and then it became Cydonia. Yeah. Some of the Chinese botanists decided they'd whack it in with the true quinces. It looks like plants of the world online have decided that they're going to stick with pseudocydonia at the moment, so I may have to change all those labels yet again. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well, that keeps you occupied and gives you something to do on a wet day in the nursery. Absolutely. <laughs> so there you go. So Agapetes hossiana. So Brilliant. There we go. Okay. I must say a big thank you to Kathy from Warrigal, who has um, rung in this morning and donated $100 towards our Radiothon target. So... Thank you very much, Kathy. Kathy, we really appreciate that. Stephen, you've got a talk coming up next Wednesday. Oh, yes. yes, Wednesday. Wednesday evening, 6.30 for refreshments. The talk's supposed to start at 7. Uh, it is, we're calling it Corsica, of course, uh, and so it'll be an illustrated talk about my trip to Corsica that I did about 18 months ago where we did a self-drive just wander. Uh, with no particular plan other than thought we could get round an island like that in a couple of weeks without too much trouble, and that's exactly what we did. Um, so we'll be looking at some of the wild plants I found while I was there, crocuses and cyclamen and all those gorgeous little things. Uh, also, there'll be images of some of the incredibly beautiful villages and scenery of Corsica. It is the most beautiful island. Oh, it's spectacular from what I've seen, yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so if you've always wanted to go there but never have, or a thinking of going there and want to do a little bit of uh, prior research 
Um, this could be great fun. It's being run by Plant Trust, um, the organisation I'm involved in that registers collections of plants. Um, it's $20 for non-members. If you don't like the talk, the wine and cheese will probably be worth 20 bucks. Uh, and $15 for members. And it's at Domain House in Dallas Brooks Drive in South Yarra. So for those who know where the herbarium is in front of the Botanic Gardens, if you're standing with the herbarium door behind you and you're looking straight down Dallas Brooks Drive, and it's the white building down on the right-hand side, mm. Domain easy House. Easy to find. It is very easy to find. Uh, so come along, um, meet some of the members of Plant Trust, um, uh, have a glass of wine and some nice cheese, and... and and we'll have a lovely talk about Corsica. So Fantastic. So that's on next Wednesday night, 6.30. Mm-hmm. Great. Tim, have you got another story for us? <laughs> <laughs> He's probably got masses of stories for us. I love stories. I this do have another story. Good. Yeah. I, I just, um, as part of, part of what we do at PMA, we uh, seek breeding material from overseas and bring it into Australia. We, uh, so it's... The, the organisation PMA has been going for 25 years, so has an extensive network of breeders and growers throughout throughout the world. Um, but one great story, which I've just come back from uh, the UK and, and Europe, um, meeting some of our breeders and growers, and I had the privilege of meeting uh, a lovely individual called Robin White, who's a he ran a nursery called Blackthorn Nurseries for many years. He and his wife and Sue are now retired. Um, he's was he's kind of like a English version of Stephen Ryan? I think. And if that is, <laughs> if, take, if that, is that, it all possible? Yeah, I, I take that as a huge compliment, yeah, considering yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. Oh, so good, oh, good. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad you do. Uh, so, Robin, and, and he's an absolute um, botanical boffin, collector of rare and interesting things. Since the, since he's, he shut the commercial business, which I think is about ten years ago, mm-hmm. they've basically turned their entire nursery site into a garden. Wow. So he and his wife Sue spend most of their time gardening. Uh, and their garden is a spectacular English garden, but it also has alpine elements, and he's got plant collections from all over the world. So it's it's a sort of garden you walk around going, well, what's that? What's that? What's that? And yep. he'll tell you the story about each individual plant, uh, which is fascinating. I could have spent days there, um, but he's his. I guess the creation of his that's that's um, most most um, readily accessible for people in Australia is a Daphne. It's called Daphne Eternal Fragrance. It's been on the market mm, for, for a while now, for probably ten what, years. Ten years, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess the the thing about Daphne Eternal Fragrance, well, the, which, which I didn't know, the the thing about the, the the story or the generation of it was, he bought some seed originally of uh, of a Daphne called Daphne Caucus Caucus. Caucasicus. Thank you. You can never say it. Which came from. A collection in the USA. So he brought seed back, grew it, uh, and Caucasium is meant to be deciduous, mm. and it was evergreen. So he was like, "Hang on, this isn't quite right." Yeah, so something went, wrong here. Something's not quite right. So he went back to them and said, "Okay, what's what's the derivation? Where, where's it growing?" And it turned out that it was growing in an area where it was most likely a, a hybrid between a, another species called Colina and Caucasica. <laughs> so it was actually not a true. Um, not a true species. Okay. So, but it, it was sort of came back into cultivation because he grew it, grew quite a number of them. And it, and in, and as again we're getting into sort of the, the minutiae of, of plant naming. In the end, they they decided him and the boffin botanists to call it Daphne Cross Transatlantica because it had gone across. Oh, oh yes. It had gone across <laughs> the Atlantic and right. then come back. Yep. And from that plant or that that series of seedlings, he's done a number of 
um, breeding crosses uh, and and continued that line. And that was what finally resulted in Daphne Eternal Fragrance. Now, Daphne Eternal Fragrance has got all these elements of, I guess, hardy. It's it's winter hardy. It's actually quite heat tolerant. Mm -hmm. It repeat flowers. Uh, and it's a quite a neat, nice little bushy neat bush. little thing. Yeah, yeah, bushy little plant. Yeah, yeah. I've got both the pale pink one and the white. Yeah, one and the, the pink garden. one is is a sport off that, yeah. which has come and later on. I think I was given them just be, uh, about the time they were being released yep. uh, at one of those sort of horticultural media association yeah, functions okay. or yep. whatever. You know, you walk off with a plant. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, some yeah, sort take of this other. to try. Yeah, Stephen. yeah, and I did. I took both of them home, and they've both done remarkably well. They, they went through this last summer without a skerrick of water. Mm. Uh, one of them is in a spot that gets pummeled, I would have said, by hot sun in the middle of the day. Um, And although it's in a bed below my veggie garden, I can't imagine much moisture gets into that particular area. I mean, I'm growing a really good poya and a yucca nearby. Okay, so it's dry. Uh, It's dry. (laughs) And and they haven't blinked. They haven't burnt. Um, They've stayed nice and compact and bushy. Um, They've, I mean... I can, can't quite say they're eternally fragrant. Yeah, they no. don't flower all well, year Well, you know, there's, there's always... <laughs> eternity's a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> we take a bit of license when yeah, we name plants. I think a little license was taken there, but <laughs> nonetheless, they do have an extensive flowering period. Um, if I've got any complaint at all is that I'm getting too old to get down on my knees to smell it really well. Because <laughs> it is quite a, a yeah, short. dumpy, short little yeah. bush. Um, and although I'm very fond of dumpy, short little bushes, uh, I also quite like things that are a bit more rangy mm. and and airy uh, plants like that are very in your face they're, they're very compact they almost look like you've trimmed them mm. um, and so they actually make almost a piece of garden topiary so they, they well it is and yeah. it's, that's part of its attraction yeah. was was firstly it's heat tolerance mm. you know, and for for an Australian gardener you're trying to grow most Daphne yeah. and, and da- people love Daphne the Daphne Fragrance is, you know, I remember that as a child. My yeah. grandmother oh, had a yes. pot at the front, front, well, the back step. Um, so to get one that's more hardy mm. and they don't have to sort of yeah. you know, fuss have over. Have they found out whether it's got any proneness to the virus? It's that's pretty clear. Yeah. From, and, and the, well, not that we've seen so far. Yeah. Um, and it has had some exposure. Mm. Uh, and I've seen the original plant of, yeah. of, I saw it in Robin's garden a couple of weeks ago. Which is now twenty odd years old, and it's still quite, quite compact, low and, and looks like, like you say, it has been trimmed, yeah. and still flowers heavily across across all the foliage. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good indicator. Yeah, if you can get a plant that will last that long, because not too many Daphne Odoras last out. No, they don't. No, they period. don't. And that, that's the one we all kind of know. Yeah. Uh, whereas this brings, I guess, that element of hardiness. It's a mm. narrower leaf. It's a more glaucousy kind yeah, of. Yeah, I have to say, you know, if people have got. Odora in their mind, which is the common Daphne, it's not really that much like its mm. relative in lots of ways. No, it's I not. Mean, it's well, it's not. It's, it's, the Odora's not in its lineage. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's, so it's, there's no sort of... You can't say in some ways that it's actually an alternative for Daphne mm. Odora because it's a, it's a plant in its own right. It's quite different. Yeah, it's quite uh, different. It, it uh, does have the fragrance, but yeah. it is a different plant. Yeah. yeah, so visually it's quite a different thing, and in lots of ways I think actually a more pleasant plant. Mm. I mean, Daphne Odora is a big green lumpy thing when it's not in flower. Mm. There's no real form or grace to the plant, I don't believe, uh, and certainly not if it's just copped some virus and it's going mm. yellow at the same time. Yes, they do. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, this... 
Eternal Fragrance does make a really nice, compact, small bush, and it would be good in a large rock garden, um, front edge of a border somewhere. Um, if you've got a formalish garden, a pair of them on either side of a set of steps would look rather rather smart. Hedging, they use them in hedging yeah, quite yeah, a lot. I've seen the Adelaide Botanic right. Gardens yeah. have got some nice hedges of them. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and it would be nice to see that instead of box bush occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good little plant. The... Um, and the other thing about the this, this story with Eternal Fragrance was that it didn't actually have much traction in, in, its, in the mm. UK or in Europe or in the States before Australia kind of discovered it. Okay. You know, it was, Robin hadn't really connected with many other uh, growers over there. He hadn't had much luck with it. It, was, it kind of came to light in Australia. This mm. is on the, on the release of it, which was probably about... Or coming out to 10 years yeah, or so ago. Yeah, it'd have to be. So my plants might be getting on towards that age. Yeah, well, if you got them in that first lot, yeah, they, they would be 10 I'm years sure old. they weren't actually on the market when I yeah, got them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think that they were brought along to one of our events. Yep. You know, yeah, so a, I've a, got some of the same yeah. lineage. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, we're in the same age. Yeah. And, and it was subsequent and to that, there, to its popularity in Australia that it's yep. now being sold back into yep. the UK, which is. A nice little story that, that, you know, a UK breeder. It took a UK breeder to yeah. popularise a plant in Australia to then take back to the palms. So yeah. quite yeah. enjoyed that. Yes, that's it. It's a certain satisfaction. <laughs> nice when you win involved. one. Yeah, yeah, get one back. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, great. Okay. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call. We have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Tim Sansom from Plants Management Australia in the studio. We'd love to hear from you. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slots. So uh, the number, 94190155 to speak to the team. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Stephen, another plant. All right. Well, actually, I want to talk about a liquid amber. Um, and they are liquid ambers, not liquid ambers, uh, for those who t- keep spelling it with an ER on the end. Um, and this is, a, this is one that I think um, came into the country via... Clive Larkman, I think. Okay. Um, not quite sure why Clive ended up with a liquid amber, but... Uh, he brings in lots of oddities. Yeah, he does. Them. He brings in some really weird and interesting stuff. Uh, and this is one called Golden Sun. Um, now, it's a, it's a liquid amber styraciflua, so it's an American sweet gum variety. Um, it tends to be reasonably vigorous, but not as big growing as a classical liquid amber, so it's probably more appropriate for the smaller garden. It has wonderful burgundy autumn foliage, which hangs on the plant to well into the winter. Yeah, well, you've still got... Yeah, there's oodles of foliage quite on Quite a lot of foliage. Yeah, That's yeah. not a bare stick, by no, any and, means. And in viewers? fact, I donated one to my neighbour, who uh, the nursery, whose property runs around the back of the nursery, and I donated one to him for the far side of my back fence, which is now getting up to about fence height, so give it another year or so and people will be starting to notice it. Funnily enough, this is Method the, this is the borrowed madness. landscape. Yes, borrowed, yes. Yeah, I don't borrow landscapes, I take <laughs> them over. Acquired landscapes. <laughs> yeah, I acquired them. So I, planted, I, I got the name, I actually placed it out for him and said, this would be a good spot for you to plant this liquid amber in. Uh, I hope PJ is not listening at the moment, but anyhow. Um, uh, and the one out the back fence, as I said, is up about the sort of six foot fence height now, and it is just a mass of burgundy foliage at the moment. There's not a leaf that's shed yet. Um, but the good thing about Golden Sun and, and where the name comes from is that when it does shed later in the winter, uh, all its twigs and main branches are orange. Mm. So it's got that sort of golden, uh, golden ash-like 
look about. Mm. So you've got these quite nice orangey-red stems. Uh, I don't know how far down the trunk it goes yet because I haven't seen a large plant. Because the fence is in the way. Yeah, yeah. the fence is in the way, <laughs> yes. Uh, but actually, I should leap the fence and go and check out the trunk of the one that I, I donated a couple of years back. Um, uh, I think it's a fantastic liquid amber. Um, and, you know, liquid ambers are pretty tough trees. Uh, they do like a bit of ground moisture, but apart from that, they're, they're not too hard to grow. They seem to cope with heat and dryness fairly well. Um, and at least in, in juvenile forms up until they get really old, most liquid ambers keep a reasonably upright conical habit. So they sort of fit into the smaller garden quite well. Uh, and, of course, if something's going to hold its autumnal colour well into winter, uh, it pays its way. Yes. Uh, and then with the pretty stems after the, the leaves do shed, um, I think golden suns are fantastic liquid mm. ambers. So definitely, definitely worthwhile looking out for. And only bare for a short time, then, yeah, I imagine, because yeah, the leaf will come again. It comes again quite yeah. quickly. So... So, um, yes, it's one of those trees that um, never really has a downtime, you know, so mm. it's always good. Its foliage in the summer is a nice, glossy, rich green. Um, so, yeah, so you could do far worse if you're looking for a, an interesting deciduous tree than to... And I, I don't know why so many people still grow seedling liquid ambers and flog off seedling stuff. I mean, you can end up with a really good tree, but you can also end up with some dross. The, yeah. yeah, the odds are against you. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And so a seedling liquid amber might be cheaper than buying mm. a budded or grafted specimen, um, but it's a completely mixed bag, and so it's a complete lottery. You just never know what you're going to get. And I've seen some truly woefully bad liquid ambers out there that don't colour at all, um, don't make a particularly well-shaped tree, uh, and all those things can go wrong, and it's because people are still growing and still buying seedling liquid ambers. Mm. So if you buy a grafted one, you know, or you can be told, exactly what the uh, characteristics of that tree is. If you buy a seedling, it's, it really is a mixed bag. So, mm. uh, so Golden Sun, I think, is a great liquid amber. Uh, I would thoroughly recommend it. I don't know that it's out there all that much, although there's um, at least one wholesale grower I know that uh, I buy it from uh, in 25-centimetre um, buckets, a nice sort of metre-high tree, um, and he grows really good stuff, so I buy his liquid ambers. And... Uh, I think this is the one that sort of has caught my imagination more than any of the other cultivars that are out there at the moment. And there's quite a number of liquid ambers out there now. And they're breeding and, and selecting them all over the places. There's actually Planet Liquid Amber now on the mm. internet. You can you know, go onto Facebook and join a, a liquid they've amber. They've got group. a whole planet for them. Yeah, they've so got a whole planet for liquid well ambers. Done. Although they've got a whole planet for Oxalis as well, yeah. which I think is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm a member of Planet Oxalis. I knew Oxalis. that'd take over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having great fun with Planet Oxalis. <laughs> on the uh, on Facebook, um, and how big will that liquid amber get? Well, we're not dead sure. Sun. Yeah, um, how old is yours? Oh, the one I uh, the one I donated yeah. to the next door neighbour uh, is is a, is a, just a little over two metres now, and it's only been in sort of well, it's probably going into its second winter, um, and it was about a metre when it went in, so it's nearly doubled in 12 months. It is below my nursery, so it gets lots of water because um, that part of the neighbour's block gets my overflow, mm. so it's getting plenty of water. Uh, it is on a sloping site, though, so it wouldn't be a wet, soggy spot, mm. and it's actually on my side of his orchard, so he's planted up a small orchard down in there as well, um, and it's doing remarkably well, mm. and it's going to be fantastic because the western sun is going to shine on it from my side nice. um, in the afternoon and just on my side of the fence I've got a very rare plant called Lindera which goes the most fabulous yellow with just the 
faintest touch of apricot mm-hmm. in its leaves. And so there'll be the Lindira and the dark burgundy of the liquid amber just be- behind. I think it's going to be absolutely fabulous. I'll sell <laughs> millions of the liquid amber and probably hardly any of the Lindiras because they're damn hard to propagate. But anyhow, <laughs> fun. I'm glad you explained the common name, though, because when you held that up, I'm thinking, how on earth do you get Golden Sun out of that? Yeah, mm. it, it, the name is, is sort of a little inappropriate until it sheds all its leaves and then suddenly... But that's one of its greatest virtues. Yeah, 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 so yeah. it is its main characteristic in a sense. I mean, lots of liquid ambers will go burgundy and mm. lots of them hold their leaves into the winter and yep. all that sort of stuff. Um, but yes, its biggest claim to fame is its golden stem. Mm. So, yeah, so the name actually... Golden goes, Winter Sun, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it... <laughs> It could have been better. I'm, I'm not quite sure the name is quite right, but then plant names are like that. They you are. Know. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was somebody who posted a paniculata hydrangea on Facebook the other day, and it's got these humongous big heads of white flowers that sort of stain pink from the bottom. Mm. And they've called it something like pink parfait strawberry or something. Oh, and no. I went, oh, no. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's the name, but it was as bad as that. You know, And, yeah. and you think... You know, how is that poor plant going to ever survive yeah. with a name like that? I'd be embarrassed to ask for it. Um, so, yeah, so you do need to think through plant names. I think it's There's really a whole, important. There's a whole world of plant naming yeah. out there. And some of them do it really well yeah. and some people do it really badly. Yeah. Uh, so no rules. No, once you get past the, the species and genus, yeah. uh, there's no rules on the cultivar name. So yeah. Well, other than the fact that want. I believe you're meant to give it a cultivar name in the language of your country where you are, and it should stay that way. So if a Japanese breeder breeds something and he wants to call it something in Japanese that might mean lion's mane or, you know, red cloud of something or other, because the Japanese are very good at all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, we're not meant to translate it into English. Yeah. We're, using okay. to, we're meant to use name. the Japanese form. Yep. Yep. Well, that's uh, fair enough. And I think that it, it's actually a good thing because it does then give the plant a sort of a history in a way. Yeah. Uh, and if we can get used to using the names that are, you know, you know, I have to say some of the German names are a bit hard on the tongue. Yeah. Um, yes. and certain, but some of them do translate too. Yeah. It's like, and um, some of the Polish ones with no vowels are really hard to deal with. <laughs> uh, yeah, hard to market those ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they are. They're really hard to market. And I can sort of understand why a lot of plants jump a border into another country and then the name gets changed. Um, But that just then adds to the confusion sometimes at the end of the day. Because if we're growing something under a name that we've sort of given it here and it's been grown as something else somewhere else, uh, eventually people just lose the connections and they Mm. don't understand why it's called that here and that there and what have you. And I think our seedling growers are probably the worst offenders in that. They just rename anything you know, when it comes in, they name it what they want to. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, so you'll buy punnets of petunias or something here that are being grown in America under a completely different name. So it's all a bit confusing. Oh, well. Next, leaf. Oh, all right. Now, this is my... Can you have a favourite oak? I don't know. There's of over, you can. over 300 of them. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but I'm a bit of a horticultural tart, and I like lots of them. <laughs> one uh, of the one of your yeah, favorite. one of my favourite oaks. Top ten. Yeah, I'd have to be in the top ten. <laughs> yes, um, this is the um, uh, Japanese uh, Domio oak, uh, Quercus dentata. And it has the biggest leaf in the oak genus. And this is off a young tree, uh, and it's still not a full-size leaf. Uh, The leaves can get up to 30 centimetres long, which is a pretty impressive leaf. It is. I have to say. Uh, And it often goes a wonderful scarlet colour in the autumn. It's sort of a muted scarlet, though, not sort of like one of those lipstick maple-y sort of colours. It's a a sort of a dusky scarlet. Um, 
Like a pin oak, it is inclined to hold its dead leaves in the winter. Uh, so as long as you're aware that that isn't a sign of death, mm. uh, I don't mind that look. Mm. You know, that sort of brownie sort of mm. look of dead leaves on a tree, it doesn't actually offend me. And it's, it's actually a colour. Mm. And so therefore it adds to my palette of colour in the winter. Um, and the Domeo oak is, is tough. Um, it better be because I've just planted one in the Macedon Cemetery over the Ryan's plots. Uh, so it's got to it's got to hang in there uh, for Mum and Dad and the rest of us when and, we end up in there. And for you, for yeah, and for life, me, yeah. well, yes, you'll be looking course. up, going, "You bloody thing!" Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, well, my plan was to actually plant something a little obscure so that hopefully the National Trust will classify it in due course, and my tree won't get cut down. <laughs> That was my wicked Good plan. plan. So yeah. I planted a domeo oak in the Macedon Cemetery, and it's also really crap soil, and it's it's a really difficult place to grow anything. And oaks in general will cope with almost anything. And having said all of that, though, it's although it can eventually make quite a big tree, and it is comparatively fast growing, it won't ever be the size of an English oak mm. at maturity. It's a smaller. Mm-hmm. tree. Uh, the one I've got in my garden at home was planted from a little plant out of a seven-inch pot. It was probably only 30 centimetres tall, maybe a little more, um, about five years ago. It's now about five metres tall and about two and a half metres wide. That's pretty fast. And it has grown really well. Most years it's sent up two sets of growth, so it's sent up its spring break, and then by early summer it sent up another one. Uh, So uh, the last couple of years I've got the best part of a metre of growth on it Mm, each year. That's good. Um, And it is a fantastic tree. And so um, Quercus dentata, we should be looking at more. In fact, I think oaks, if you've got at least a reasonably large garden or you're looking for a specimen tree, should be looked at more by home gardeners in Australia because they will tolerate a huge range of conditions um, with a plob. I mean... Mm. It's got these vast big leaves, but it didn't even show any sign of burn during the summer. You can get those 45-degree days with a howling northwesterly, and it just laughs at it. And beautiful shade. And too. lovely shade. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no big, I mean, yeah, this leaf is, yeah. what, what's it about? 25 centimetres? Yeah, yeah, it's a, getting it's on towards leaf. maximum size. Um, and, of course, oak, oak leaves are renowned for making good mulch and compost mm. and oh, what yes. have you as well. So deciduous trees... By nature, their leaves tend to be high nutrient, and they also rot reasonably quickly. So and dragging minerals from deep in the soil yeah. as their root systems yeah. go. So, yes, yeah, so I think we could all do a lot worse than planting an interesting oak in our gardens, uh, and not considering the fact that you're planting a, an oak, so you've got to wait for two generations before it makes a decent-sized plant. Uh, I mean, this grows comparatively quickly. Mm. Um, and certainly, I mean, it doesn't have the speed of a radiata pine or a blue gum or something, but um, it's not that far behind. Oh, that growth rate you've just described is yeah, yeah, it's remarkable cool. for yeah, an oak, actually. Yeah, I think it's really good. So um, it's not all that commonly grown still, uh, but there are ample trees of it in Australia that are acorning. Uh, and as long as you collect the seed from an appropriate source, because don't collect the seed from the one in the oak lawn at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, because oaks are exceedingly promiscuous, uh, and that oak lawn has got such a huge diversity of of, uh, genetic material on it. It's going to be anything. You will get hybrid oaks almost invariably, so if you want to get the true thing, you need to get it from a tree that's reasonably well isolated, or a group of trees that are reasonably well isolated from other oaks, so that you get the pure form. Uh, But but it is definitely worthwhile. Mm. One of the sources of 
acorns mm. for cultivation is um, Canberra. Do, mm. do, you, do you go and do the pilgrimage no, each year? I know people that do. Does. Yeah. Uh, one of my growers, and he gets into trouble with people up in Canberra all the time because he's ratting around on nature strips collecting yeah. acorns and stuff, and people come out and tell him off for it. And, and he's saying, yeah. that, you know, all I'm doing is taking something away you're going to discard. Yeah, you're going to put it in the bin or it's yeah. just going to rot away. Yeah, so I think it's a fabulous thing. So, cause the, so the, the derivation of that story is, or that, I think when they planted the street trees yeah. of Canberra, this is going back... Well, back into Burley Griffin's yeah, time, yeah. was one species per, yeah. per street. So and so that way you got sort of uh, stabil- stable genetic material. Mm. Uh, so if you wanted to collect oaks, acorns, then you went to the specific street in Canberra yeah. where that species of oak grows, yeah. and you'd get pretty pure... Yep. Uh, babies from it. Because I know up in Mount Macedon, there's, you know, a lot of oaks up in gardens up there that have been there for, you know, 120, 130 years mm. or more. Um, and if anybody's going to have an argument about what something is, it'll be about an oak tree. Mm. Uh, because there's just so much hybridity going yeah. on, you know, and they'll say, oh, it could be Quirkus roba. Mm. Oh, I think it's got mm. a bit of canary yeah. ensis. And that's in the it. often yeah. the one. It's roba and canary Oh, yeah, they, they crossbreed yeah. all over the joint. Um, and so, you know, and we've got second and third generation oaks coming up all over Mount Macedon now that are, are quite obviously hybrid swarms, mm. uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, um, uh, you know, if you want to know that you've got the species, then you need to get it from a reliable source. Mm. Uh, and oaks are rarely grafted unless they're specific leaf cultivars or whatever, so they're nearly always seedling raised. Yep. Uh, so if you want to get a good one or one that seems to be true to form, then you need to get it through a supplier who hasn't collected it off the oak lawn at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so there you go. Quercus dentata, the domio oak from Japan. I think it's also on mainland um, China as well. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful tree. So, mm. you know, definitely worthwhile looking into. What other species have they got in, around the streets of Canberra? Oh, I don't, I've never done the pilgrimage. Yeah, they've, they've got oodles of stuff. There's streets yeah. with um, uh, colraterias as, as the only tree in the street. There's other streets with hackberries, the, the celtus. Um, there's a range of different oaks. Uh, there's, there's conifers. There's uh, cedars and things like that that are used in some streets of Canberra. Okay. So it's mainly exotic trees. Uh, at the time, it was the thing to do was, of course, to plant European and North American mm. trees. Uh, so there's not so many native trees, although later plantings have included a lot of um, eucalypts and things. Um, so it's it's a huge palette, and apparently there is a book you can get of the street trees of Canberra. Oh, really? I haven't seen it. I must get a copy one day. I'll have to see if the library's got it. Yeah, mm. and, and so it tells you what's being grown in the streets and what streets they're in. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It, well, I, I know of nurserymen that go up there every oh, year yeah. at, at oak time. Okay. Yeah, specifically yeah. with bags, you know, yeah. chaff bags, and you're raking up, you know, acorns, <laughs> riding on the bags. Yeah. 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 And I think that's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a great resource. Well, isn't it? Isn't it and, wonderful? And we should we, we... be doing more of that in our streetscapes. Mm. Uh, I spent a lot of time um, with the Parks and Gardens super of the Masson Ranger Shire about, oh, I don't know, must have been six or seven years ago. Uh, no, it was during the millennial drought because we were worried about what was happening oh, yeah. to some of our trees. Yeah. And he myself and one of the local tree surgeons, each month we would go to a different town within the Shire and we'd have a look around and see what was growing around the town, not necessarily in the streetscapes, but what was doing well in each town. Mm -hmm. And we made lists of, and each town had its own list, so there wasn't any duplicated trees in the lists. So instead of yet 
another Pinoak Avenue or a, mm. another whatever avenue. Um, each town was designated specific trees for specific purposes. So there were really big trees for major avenues and big streets. There were trees for courts and small streets. Uh, there was uh, native trees. There was exotic trees. So we had this whole list for each town. Um, so I dedicated, I don't know, days and days of my life to this thing, uh, all for nothing, um, because I thought it would be a great thing for the district if we could do that, because in time each town would develop its own characters. Mm. Um, and the council accepted the um, the lists and proposals and stuff, and as far as I know, I've done bugger all with it ever since. Yes. Yeah, sadly. Sadly, because there's there, there is evidence around us of what trees are going to survive mm-hmm. in a changing warming climate. Of course you know, it is. When you look at, look, you, I mean, if I look at Adelaide, I mean, I, I, have you ever been to the, the Waite Arboretum in Adelaide? No, I haven't been to the so Waite yet. But th- this is a, you know, it's an arboretum that was planted 100 years ago mm-hmm. and never watered mm-hmm. in a climate like Adelaide's. There is lessons to be learnt there oh, yeah. for Melbourne, for oh, the yes, regional towns definitely. in Victoria, because uh, these, these are the plants that are going to survive with the new conditions that yeah. we're getting. Mm. And the observations are there. We can learn these things mm. by looking. And we don't have to be predictable. We can find the things that are yeah. succeeding that aren't normally the things that are in the, yeah, in the garden exactly. centre or you in know, the, I, I in think, the you know, we, we should be doing things like that because it will give our towns character and, and individuality. Oh, yes. uh, it's just like the same in home gardens. You know, I'm... Obviously, one of those people because I've got a, uh, an interest in it. But I'm obviously one of those people that encourages people to not plant the obvious. You know, try something different and new, something that other people haven't got. Uh, I mean, who wants to go down a street and, f- and not be able to work out which is your place? <laughs> <laughs> you know, our houses all tend to be somewhat similar as you go down a street, and they're generally on the same size block as everybody down the street. We're all in the same socio-economic group as the people in our street. We're probably all driving vehicles that are similar. Uh, one of the few places we can be different is actually in our gardens, and uh, and yet people will still go and buy a trolley load of iceberg roses and some box hedging. And I just don't get it. It just leaves me completely cold. Uh, And what can one say about a garden that's got a row of standard iceberg roses and box hedging other than isn't it neat? Mm. Is that all you can say? Neat's not necessarily an indicator of good, though, is it? No, it's not. not. And and all you can say is it's neat. And there's no conversation that can be generated from a garden like that. Whereas if you've got some really interesting plants in your garden, uh, there's a win-win situation going on here because when visitors come, uh, they will ask you a question because you've got something that they haven't seen before. So you get to teach them something, mm. and as a payback, you get to look smart. <laughs> so when you get to share, and, and, and back to that concept of trialling plants mm. for, for a changing climate, you know, you get to see what's succeeding. Okay, yeah. that's succeeding in this area. Okay, let's, let's plant it more. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's um, find the things that are going to be less difficult for yeah. us to well, grow. Well, particularly for public spaces. I mean, we did mention earlier in the program about why would you want to grow all the same things that you know are going to grow in your garden as well. So mm. you've got to go f- both directions. So from a home gardener's perspective, the idea of challenging nature and trying to grow something that we shouldn't have has its allure as mm. well, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily want to fill your whole garden up with no, plants and, like that. And councils and public space That's and different. landscape designers and architects are looking for surefire solutions. They, oh. It costs them money to go back two or yeah, three times exactly. to replant. So they've got so, to get it right. So they've got to get a palette that's, that's strong, mm. which is where that whole concept of looking at what plants are succeeding mm. without intervention, you know, with longevity uh, and, and good form. Yeah. That, that palette could widen a lot. Yeah. At the moment, it's quite restricted it is. Uh, because of that. And some of those plants that are, are still being used 
uh, are being used just because they were used before. Yes. Um, and, you know, people are still planting elm avenues. And I know that we should be protecting our elms of Melbourne because, you know, we're one of the last bastions of the elm in the world. But why are we planting new elm mm. avenues when we know that we're going to have to deal with elm leaf beetle? Mm. And it may only be a matter of time before we get Dutch elm disease. Yes. Uh, and then we could have whole landscapes completely destroyed just and like that. And these, these are 100 year decisions, yeah. you know, putting a tree like yes. that in. So yeah. you've got to think of what is the conditions that are gonna, that tree is going to yeah. be enduring in 100 years, whether it's Dutch elm or whether it's massively dry summers yep, and, exactly. and flash flooding or hot winds or whatever it's yeah, going to be. Yeah, so you do have to look at these things in a different way. And maybe that's something too that uh, certainly public spaces should look at. We still have this um, you know, sort of Victorian attitude of avenue planting, um, which is, of course, always putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh, so if something's going to go wrong, it goes wrong mm. with the whole avenue because they're all elms or they're all whatever. Yep, yep. Um, maybe this avenue planting thing, is, as grand as it can look, is something we should be rethinking. Mm. Uh, and maybe we should be planting copses and individuals of trees and, and moving on to something else and uh, you know, uh, adding biodiversity to our plantings mm. yeah. uh, so that if does, something does go wrong, you've only lost those eggs and yeah. not the whole basket's worth. Yeah, uh, which is, it, these are lessons of ecology that, that are coming yeah. in. I think that there is a movement into, into uh, landscape design in urban environments. Mm. There's the, the, the woody meadow concept yeah. that I know that, that Burnley and the University of Melbourne uh, and City of Melbourne are working with, yep. which, is, which is a diversity of species, woody plants, that can be hacked to the ground every five years and regenerate. Mm. So some things go, some things come, and it is that sort of mosaic ecology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's we can do that in gardens too. Of course we can. Mm. And potentially in avenues or in or in more formal landscapes, if we think about the plants that we use and we broaden the palette oh, of yes. plantings that are being used. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. That's my rant. That's, that's <laughs> quite deep this morning. Sorry. And we haven't had a ringer in yet. Everyone's too busy listening, I think. Either that or they're all snuggled up in bed still. But <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> you do have you half an hour, so if you want to jump on those phones and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number, 94190155, to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to chat to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Let's get back to um, PMA. Um, when you... <laughs> What's the process? Does someone approach you with a new plant? Do you go out and and tend to go to some of your breeders that have, you've already worked with to see what they might have coming up new? What's what's the starting process? There's there's probably not a single answer. Well, right. there isn't a single okay. answer to that question. They, yep. Breeders can come from any which direction. Okay. Um, it could be oh, we have. Um, some breeding um, houses or, or teams that are prolific and producing a lot of material and will go back to the well all the time and there's always a line extension, if you like. There's, yep. you know, there's a particular lavender. Uh, the Plant Growers Australia, PGA, in Wonga Park, are one of our principal breeders uh, and they've been doing plant breeding for 20, 25 oh, years. long time. Uh, they've actually now employed a, 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 a specific dedicated breeder into their breeding program. Oh, okay. Um, so they're taking that stuff really seriously, investing mm. in it, mm. and and it's producing dividends. We're taking we're taking some of the lavenders that they've produced. And you, people will see the lavender the princess in the market yes. or ghostly princess, and there's a there's a bunch more in that in that line. We're taking those to Europe, and to the states, to Canada, and they're starting to get you know international acclaim. Mm. So there's the sort of big breeding houses like that. 
And then there's kind of some of the one-offs. Um, yep. Someone like Bob Magnus is a kind of a one-off. It's, a, yep. it's he's through his dedication and mm. 30 years of of, mm. look, of looking at plant material. Here's something that's of interest. Or um, David Glenn up at Lambert. Or David Glenn. He's got mm. a couple of so his uh, Euphorbia Ascot Rainbow is one that that came. Essentially, his breeding program is it's it's intended. He's he's looking for things all the time, mm. but it's coming from his garden, uh, yep. and that's that's where it starts. There's this, you know, we've got, in fact, quite a lot of the breeders that we have are nurserymen uh, who've been growing plants and collecting genetic material and sort of watching what happens with plants and seedlings over a generation or two, mm. and something pops up. And then they'll find us and we'll have a chat with them. How, what can we do with this? Is it got commercial possibilities? And away we go from there. Okay. It's, it's, it's a network thing. It's not, you, you can't sort of... Go out and look for a breeder specifically. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you don't say this week we'll find a new lavender. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you don't, you don't say, and a breeder doesn't say this week I'm going to create a new lavender. Yeah, exactly. It, it is a, it's got a long tail. This oh process. yes, yes. Uh, and interesting with the Robin White, with who's the, the Daphne breeder, he's got a, a rhodanthemum uh, called Casablanca, yeah. uh, which is actually taking taking some. It's getting some um, significant interest in the UK and in Europe at the moment, mm. so it's selling good numbers. He never anticipated that that would do much. Mm. And suddenly it's just found a niche and away it goes. Yeah. And he's now sitting back in his retirement and collecting a royalty check every, yeah. every year. Well, yeah. I had some nice Kiwis on my trip to the south of France last year who are spending the money they've made out of mainly cordylines, I think. Yeah. Um, I think I know couples. what you're talking about. Yeah, you may well this do. This is the growing spectrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they're spending yeah. their royalty money uh, having a lovely old time yeah. um, uh, out of their breeding program. Well, they, 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 I think the plant, uh, one of the plants is, is Caprosma ignite, which comes yeah, from, yeah. from them. So Could that, well Because be, there's yeah. quite a number of Caprosmas that come out of, out mm. of New Zealand. Uh, but, yeah, and they're kind of, some of those are accidental discoveries, and mm. away they go. And you think... Good on them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm still waiting for mine, but you know, it, it might one day come. <laughs> Surely it's there. Yeah. Oh, look, you've got to hope. Come I've, and have a chat with me yeah, off I've, here. Yeah, I've ha- I've had sort of a couple of <laughs> thoughts over the years that that might work, and then for some reason or another it hasn't, or whatever. But anyhow, you never know. Maybe in retirement I will have something that will keep me going without having to worry about my super. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there. There is, and it's. I mean, sure, there's an, a commercial element to to this. Um, um, you know. And which is, I guess, a new element to horticulture in the last 25 years because yep. the, the Plant Breeders' Rights Act came mm. in, in 25 years ago. Yep. Prior to that, breeders would, would produce a, a, a new plant, would put it to market with a name, and their protection would be the first two or three years they would get the sole sales for it because they were the only supplier of it. Mm. But very quickly after, after that. But very quickly after yes. that, it would disappear into, into, into commerce and, yep. and basically they, they were, they're known for it. It's sort of your name, but there's no, no commercial element to mm. it. What PBR has enabled breeders to do is to invest in their breeding program because they can know they can get a guaranteed return. Mm. Uh, you know, I, th- I think of you know, the PGA, a good example. David Glenn's doing quite a bit at, at Lamley. Uh, native plant wholesalers out in Mount Gambia. That's Acacia Limelight is one of theirs, and there's a few others that they do. These people are actually putting into that program now, and it's to the betterment of plant material that that people are using in gardens. You know, it's, it, it's it's actually a win-win for everyone because mm. they're better plants, more suited to the landscapes of the future, and the breeders are getting their their reward for it. Mm. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to uh, Victoria, who's up in St Andrews. Good morning, Victoria. Oh, good morning. Go oh, ahead. I just, want, 
Thank you. I just wanted to let you know that um, the book that you just mentioned before, um, Street Trees in Canberra, oh, yeah. free, it's a free PDF online. So oh, it's oh, really? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Straight on to that now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so just Google Street Trees in Canberra and it's the first one that comes up as a PDF, so it's great. Oh, that's oh, fantastic. Really? So anybody who's going up to Canberra for a few days, you can yes, have a, yeah. a lot of fun. Here's yeah. an idea, Stephen. You could do the horticultural tour of yes. Canberra. Street, street yes, trees in Canberra. Canberra. I'm sure there's some Canberrian that's yeah. probably already doing that, but uh, <laughs> uh, it certainly has its allure, uh, and it would be a very useful source for those nurserymen that go fossicking mm. around on nature strips. So, yeah, there you go. I hope, we, have, you I hope we haven't blown their secret. Oh, right. oh, I probably have. <laughs> yeah, they'll all be fighting over the acorns before you know it. <laughs> Victoria, thanks so much. No worries. Okay, Thank you. Thank you for the show. Bye-bye. And uh, next up we have Jill from the Herb Society. Morning, Jill. Hi, Sam. Hi, Stephen and your other guest. Tim. Tim. Um, the Herb Society's meeting on Thursday evening in Room 10 at Burnley Horticultural College and the topic is pruning fruit trees and other trees and Titch, who's from Fleming's, is coming and he's fantastically um, skilled and experienced and uh, he's fantastic at showing exactly what to do. So uh, that should be a lovely evening and we always have a raffle and sell some plants and um, uh, it's time to join up to the Herd Society again. We have a magazine with six coloured... Six coloured magazines a year, and I hope people will come. Um, 7.15 for 7.30, and enter by the steel door. And it's a magic door, it opens as soon as you get to it. It sounded heavy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it'll be a lovely evening, even if it is chilly. Excellent. <laughs> okay, Thanks, sounds good. Sam. Bye. Bye. Okay, as I mentioned, uh, we are running through until 9.15, so you do have about uh, 15 or so minutes. If you want to jump on board, give us a call, 94190155 to speak to the team on air or 94198377 to speak to Robin on the outside line. Okay, so you, you found a plant, you found a breeder who's got something What's then the process, and I bet that can vary a lot too, before yeah. it actually gets to fruition and out being marketed overseas? Yeah, well, at first, it, it, the, the time is a factor in all of this. You, yep. you, if, uh, we've, we get phone calls from time to time from someone, I've got this interesting special thing. I had a lady ring the other day who had a uh, pink foliage tradescantia. Um, so we got to go, okay, is it genuine? Or is it just a starved plant? <laughs> yes, yes. Is, is it something that's... Is it stable? <laughs> yeah, is it, is it stable? Is it replicable? Can, is it, is it, can you propagate it? Because if something's not propagatable, you know, it's no much point Forget even it. going past step one. That's right. Um, so all those sorts of basic elements of fundamentals, does the plant work in, in horticulture? Mm. Got to figure those things out. Is it unique enough? Okay, then is it marketable? Is there a market for it out there? Is it something that we can... We can sell to people. Is yeah, it appropriate? You can't always make a market, can you? Some plants, yeah. some plants work, yeah. yeah, and some plants not but, necessarily. Yeah, and they yeah. can still be good plants. There's yeah. no reason why they aren't, but it's just it doesn't sort of fit people's expectations, at least yeah. how they're gardening at a particular era. Um, so yeah, so it can be a great plant, but 
you know, things can still work again. And there, I think there are plants that, I mean, what, what we're looking at, at at PMA is looking at plants that can get into a mass market. And that's, that's, yes. that's what we're doing. It's, yeah. you know, for a breeder, our best representation is to sell as many mm. plants as we possibly can, and we're always working for the breeder. So you have to tick all those boxes, mm. which include some really boring things like, will it fit on a shelf? Yeah. You know, will it fit on a truck? Mm. Will it transport across the country and not die? Yeah. You know, you, they're not the sorts of things that are that a gardener necessarily thinks about. When, when I plant in fact, a plant, a gardener probably doesn't care about not. all that stuff. No, in fact, no. In, in fact, there's That's a market right. there which which Stephen you occupy, which yeah. is for plants that don't have to fit into that world. Yeah, well, exactly. I re- always remember um, the dahlia breeder from uh, New Zealand. Uh, Keith Hammett, is yes. it? Yes. Yep. Uh, Keith talking about a range of dahlias he bred, but they never took off because they wouldn't fit on the shoulder yeah. uh, in, in the trucks That's in right. America. So they were just that bit too tall, yep. uh, and so they wouldn't fit into that shelving system, so they never took off. That's right. And, and, and they probably were fantastic plants. Yeah, and great plants. Yeah, mm. And there are many examples of plants that never make it to mass horticulture because they don't fit that mould. And I celebrate those plants in my own garden, and, and I'm sure you do, Stephen. But there's, if you want to get to that mass market, they've got to fit the, the mm. system. Um, as I mentioned before, I was in, in Europe or in the UK just recently, and I went to Holland because the Dutch is... That, the Netherlands is the home of horticulture, mm. or the, the, they like to think that. I think they're probably right. <laughs> it, is, it is the... the it's a, it is the world of commercial horticulture, and you see the sort of level that things have to work at. Mm. Well, I was seeing um, robots that stick cuttings. Uh, I was see, and these cuttings are coming oh, from. Dear. Yeah, the, 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 this is <laughs> and this is extreme. It is yeah. a bit frightening. Uh, so careful here. Yes, these cuttings come from mother plants in Kenya, uh, and are then flown to the Holland to, to the Netherlands, where they're put in, in stuck in cuttings with a robot. They're right. grown on there, and then they're shipped back to anywhere in the world. Right. Now, that is the extreme end. Yes. You know, and if, and, and if you've got to be able to produce things in vast quantities vast for that quantities. to pay. That's millions. Yeah. Millions, yes. millions of units. And for a plant to fit into that system, they have to tick all those boxes mm. and be a particular, particular type of plant. So we're not talking about rarities. We're talking about really mass-produced plants. So not every plant has to fit into that kind of category. But you have to consider all those elements. Yeah, it's got to somewhere fit into a commercial system, though, yeah. that, that it can be propagated in enough quantity to make it worth everybody's while to be to, involved. So all the way along mm. that chain. Yeah. So, that's, so we look at different plants. So if someone comes to us with a plant, we, we go through all those questions in our own, in our own um, system. And then once it gets to the next stage, it's, okay, now we, we get it into propagation, get it into cultivation, we'll do trials, we'll do field trials, we'll mm-hmm. send it out to growers to do trials. And so all of that is what pre-market before it even gets close to getting mm-hmm. to the market. Mm-hmm. And that process will take three, four, oh, five yes. years. Yes. Just, and I just guess it depends stage. on the style of plant. I mean, if it's an annual, you can move things through fairly quickly. If it's a tree, you've got a quite different That's right. level That's of right. commitment to yes. getting that to a, a so certain level. Yeah, and trees... The, the, the PBR, the the, um, the timeline for a tree is 25 years, mm. whereas okay. it's, where it's 20 years for a perennial. Yep. Uh, so you do get longer. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it takes much longer to do, a generation yeah. of a tree. Yeah. And, 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 of course, a tree has to be grown long enough to get all of its characteristics right. in place so that yep. you know exactly what it's going to do. Um, I mean, I can remember reading about rhododendron breeders, for instance, say, and from seed to flowering can take 10 to 15 mm. years. Uh, and then you've got to assess the plant over the next 10 or 15 years to see whether it's got strength. So 30 years straight up. Yeah, yeah. straight up. Uh, and then it's got to be propagatable. I mm. mean, nobody wants to grow grafted rhododendrons anymore, so it's mm. got to be something that will 
strike from cuttings. So a whole race of superb rhododendrons yeah. have disappeared because they were all difficult to propagate. But yep. Stunningly beautiful, exotic-looking things, and that's, that is tragic. We yeah. see that too with our uh, hellebore breeder in in Holland, uh, and they, they're, so they're breeding they're breeding heat tolerant, which is interesting for, for Holland, yeah, for Holland. But they they've got a gene that is heat tolerant okay. that, that's working in from a particular particular plant they're using in their breeding program. But they've got. I mean, I'm going to visit their place, and I've seen photos. I've not been there in the winter, but they have this vast array of hellebore flowers that are all stunning and beautiful marbled foliage. But there are many of the varieties that they are not commercialising because they won't go into tissue culture. Mm-hmm. And tissue culture is the only way we can get them into yeah, the country. That, okay. That's right, exactly. Because yeah. so if you're yeah. raising them from seeds, you can't, they're not stable. That's right. So, yes, so, you've got yeah. to be able to tissue so, culture. And that, that, you want that to process that. is long, expensive, and but produces plants that are really mm. you know, exceptional plants. Mm. And so it's a long process. Wow. And there's a lot in it. Yes. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. Often not all that interesting to the consumer at the end of the day, but that is the background of how these plants get there. Well, I um, hope it, I hope this is giving listeners a bit of an understanding when they walk into a nursery and see a vast array of plants to of all descriptions to choose from. Just what's gone in behind all of that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's absolutely There's incredible. Lot, it's, this is nothing new either. I mean, yeah. You, no, no. All pretty much all the plants that we have in our gardens are. Bred, cultivated, selected. Mm. I mean, all of our food crops are heavily bred, cultivated, yes. and selected. So this is not something that's scary. I mean, we're not talking about genetic engineering here. Oh we're no, not about at all. Classic breeding, yep. which is not intervening in the in the in the gene string. It's this, it's just normal sexual um, pollination and yep. and propagation. So it's, it's something that's been in our culture in, in human existence for many many years. Yeah. It, it's but it is there in our in our garden centres. Exactly, there. we see it in all the plants that we have. Yep, it's 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 part of what we have. So we don't necessarily see it all the time, but it is there. Mm. Mm. No, I think it's fascinating. I really do. Okay, we better get to a few more callers. First up, we have uh, Sonia out in Broadmeadows. Good morning, Sonia. Hello. Good morning. How are you? We're well, thank you. I'm just wondering. Uh, um, I. See helicopter very often in the uh, uh, spraying uh, over houses, uh, but that is spray some I think some kind of chemical uh, sulfuric acid I think to uh, it damage the trees. I noticed the tree become very bad uh, this year. Hmm. I'm not really quite sure what your heading towards here. Um, I've not seen any helicopters going around spraying anything. I've never seen a helicopter spraying. I saw saw, and people in my street, they know about it. They spray very often over uh, Dallas area and Kularu. They spray uh, and uh, I think uh, this, uh, this stuff what they spray is chemical. Well, anything that's being sprayed is likely to be a chemical. I mean, that's... But can, you, can you actually spray from a helicopter? Well, I would have thought normally they'd use light the aircraft yeah. for that because with the helicopter with its mm. rotary blades, I would have thought it would be very hard to direct what you were doing yeah. in the appropriate direction. Yeah, you're direction. going to disperse it. Yeah. I've, I've never seen crop dusting anywhere close to uh, populations. It's normally in broad acre yeah. way yeah. out in the Western District. They think 
the people in here in uh, Dallas, uh, they uh, like uh, re- like people who is religious and they cover themselves. They come from migrant background. They think they are ignorant and uh, uneducated, so they don't understand what they're doing to them. But they spray chemical and affects everybody, the trees and people. People have asthma. Uh, my neighbor, she said to me, uh, she suspect uh, that her kids have asthma herself her, has asthma because of the, sp- the stuff they throw in the air by the helicopter. Yeah, well, I've not heard of it. I'm sorry, Sonia. I don't know about it. But has anybody actually talked to any of the authorities about it? I mean, I would be certainly getting on to my council and I would also be perhaps talking to somebody in the environmental side of things in the government and say, mm. you know, what is going on? Because, you know, you can be frightened of something happening, but unless you know exactly what is in fact happening, then you're doing it from a position of uh, of. of having no intelligence about what's going on. So if you want to know what's going on, I think you need to start, you know, amongst a group of you to lobby some of the people that are involved in government to find out if there is actually an issue instead mm. of just sort of assuming there is. So I would certainly be getting on to government and certainly starting with local government uh, if you've got proof that these things have been flying over and, and dropping yeah, something they, from them. Yeah. yeah. But I'm they, afraid we, we, we don't know anything about it, so we really have no... Um, yeah, we can't comment. They, they're not doing this in a, uh, over where people who is educated like you, but they do it, as I said, in area where people can be silenced. Well, first, first up, I think you need to contact your local council because, as I say, we have absolutely no evidence or knowledge of this, yeah, so we can't comment. Yeah. Okay, thanks for alerting thanks. us. Bye. Bye. Uh, next up, we're going to go to uh, Sue in Mount Evelyn. Morning, Sue. Good morning, Pam. I'm really enjoying the program, but Good. especially when you're getting onto the breeding. So <laughs> of course, right I up your alley. Oh, you, oh yeah. Sue, yes. Yeah, so I'm involved with the breeding. Not involved, I'm not doing the breeding, but I'm actually doing the propagation and the trials to um see how to how to get the plants up and going so i was just going to say the process i've been there for 10 years now and um like we've launched a range called the chimes range for the couriers and uh the amount of seedlings that you get and then you've got to sit there and make a choice which one is the best and i can remember when we had all the orange ones to make a choice of two and we were focusing on um getting uh a hardy plants are putting autumn blaze with Annie's Delight and the amount of seedlings that you actually got but trying to find two so one that actually flowered earlier and one that flowered later in the autumn winter um, so yeah trialing all that and it's uh, very interesting because a lot of them are really temperamental to hormones so a lot of our new plants actually are striking up better without any hormones at all and then the ones that you can't get enough cutting material from, we're actually doing by tissue culture. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm involved with that as well because sometimes you've just got the tiniest little seedling and um, some of the Australian natives are really quite difficult to grow, especially the um, grevilleas. So we do a lot of grevilleas and also um, grasses uh, by tissue culture in our poly. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's very, very interesting. And I have to say, it is my most favourite thing uh, to going to work is actually doing that and actually having a look at all the new seedlings. And that's very, very exciting. 
Um, also being able to... Um, Ian's really focused on... Um, working on um, getting new plants that are more compact too that you can fit into uh, smaller suburban gardens as well. So um, smaller varieties, hardy, and also for the landscaping industry too. So there's uh, a need for that to find new um, plants that are really hardy, prolific flowers and things like that that landscapers can actually use in their projects as well. So it is... It is so time-consuming. I know with the Corriers, I think our first selection was about 2015, um, and then it takes quite a few years because you've got to build up all your plants then to be able to get enough cuttings and plants to actually launch the um, plant, and then also picking the names. And uh, we no, have no, no, a competition. The names. <laughs> yeah, I know, Stephen, you didn't like some of mine. I can remember texting my boss one day, and he said... They all sound like desserts, <laughs> but so does peaches and cream, and have a look at how big that one was. Yeah, because yeah. Some of the grevilleas, I think, uh, they were my names, was strawberry smoothie and raspberry ripple, and I know Stephen didn't like one of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it wasn't yeah, quite parfait, though. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I just thought, yeah, I'd, uh, yeah, just speak about that it's 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 really interesting can i I just pick up on something you mentioned there sue which is that that in the breeding programs and what people don't perhaps realize is that it's really about what you reject and it's all you know you you, one selection might have come out of i don't know two three hundred four hundred a thousand seedlings absolutely it's, it's that ruthlessness to choose what to throw away because you never know what could have been in there. But yeah, you, true. But the I'm breeders sure. like yourself are making those choices. So. Some of them are actually, when we made the first selections on a lot of the plants, if there was a doubt on it, um, because, I mean, it's it's horrible to see all the seedlings actually getting thrown away. I feel like just rescuing them all and putting them in my garden. I don't think your garden's quite yeah, big, big enough, enough yeah. No, I know that. <laughs> it's squashed as it is. And um, But, you know, further down the track, you look at it because... Not everybody thinks the same about the plants. No, and, no. and you're kind of guessing what say, people are going to want too. No, I don't like it. And mm. I say, oh, no, I like it. And Ian says, yes, but you like every plant. I <laughs> <like every> say <laughs> oh, so you're not regarded as being ruthless enough, obviously, Sue. Yeah, but you know what? A couple of years down the track, you'll look at it and think, no, I actually do like that. Mm. And then you'll actually go and do it. But it's not just that too. It's also about what the plant looks like in a six-inch pot, mm. in an eight-inch pot. and yes. is it marketable yeah you know because people are looking at that they're looking at the form and to me i i like the foliage and the form the flowers are a bonus yeah you know so because even if you don't get the prolific flowers and you've got your beautiful compact plant that's also marketable then to the um landscape industry of course you know, with Australian natives and, and drought tolerant and whatever. And, I mean, we've got a stock garden filled with lots of things and it's only just now that they're probably cleaning up the garden and saying, right, we're not going to do that and opening up enough space to uh, put the lines that are really big because in a lot of cases I'm struggling to be able to get the cuttings to provide to the people, like some of them, like on um, Deep Purple, I think a couple of years ago, we had 6,000 um, in orders for mm. Bunnings and for um, our Bush Magic range. And sometimes you're pushing to get the plant material because we take a lot of it off pots because they strike easier. 
but you've got to be careful that you don't cut the pots back too much to get the cuttings. Otherwise, then you've got to hold on to the pots before you can sell the pots. Mm. So it's it's a big juggle. But uh, a lot of the cuttings end up coming out of my garden too if we run out or, or Virginia's as yeah. well. I've had to go to Virginia's and um, take cuttings when there's been a big demand for that. And it's actually really good because... Virginia's actually put quite a few plants into her garden that we sell too. So yep. it's great having access to that. And yep. also trialling them. We put the new um, couriers and different things into different people's gardens to see how they hold up in different mm. conditions. Virginia's soil's very different to mine. I've got wet clay. So it's a perfect garden to try Australian natives in in mine because it gets waterlogged in winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the couriers, my whole front garden is... All, all our new plants, <laughs> and they're looking wonderful. Great. Mm. Okay. Okay, then. Thank you for Thank that. You. Bye. Bye. Right, very quickly we'll go to uh, Fermi and Reedsdale. Good morning, Fermi. Oh, good morning, Pam. Good morning, panel. Uh, we've morning, only got morning. a couple of minutes, Fermi. Um, I do this forward warning from uh, the Alpine Garden Society that we've got a talk coming up in August, on August 24th, uh, we've got an international speaker, a guy called Oren Perry, who's known in bulb circles because he sells seeds of uh, rare Mediterranean plants, particularly plants from Israel, uh, which is where he lives. And it's going to be on the 24th of August. Uh, Stephen should know. He's been sent the newsletter. Mm, yes, I've seen it, so I'm hoping I might be able to go. I hope you can. It's uh, $45 for non-members of the AGS Victorian Group and uh, $25 for members. And um, he's doing two talks. It's going to be from 12.30 till 5 o'clock, and we'll provide an afternoon tea. And it's going to be up at the community hall in Olinda. I will send, I, I think I sent you the, uh, the promo, uh, Pam, but yes. I'll, I'll try and uh, make sure we have it before that time. Brilliant. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much. And thank you for um, whoever organised getting some things from um, the 3CR Radiothon to Margot for me. Nothing. Any, well, hardly any of the things I'd actually ask for, but that's the problem with not being there to pick it up yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Thanks a lot. Bye, Thanks, Fermi. Fermi. Bye. Very quickly, Stephen, um, uh, two callers want to know the botanical name again of the, uh, the Agapetes. Agapetes hossiana, H-O-S-S-E-A-N-A, um, and you will sometimes find it being sold as Red Elf. Okay, and also Margaret in Camberwell wants to know when's a good time to prune gall wasp out of her lemon tree. The wasps emerge uh, August to October, so June, July. Now. Yeah, now. Just, just get stuck into it. We've run out of time. Uh, again, um, Pete in Little River, I will hold over your question for another time, but we will get to that. Um, and... Uh, We've got to go. A big thank you to the team on air. A big thank you to Rosemary and Robin, who've been handling all the calls. Until next Sunday morning at 7.30, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.